So we're in a standalone, all right? Standalones are awesome. You know why? Because it allows you to teach, um, man, whatever the Lord is working in your soul for that week, all right? And so this week, man, we're teaching through John 1, all right? This is the last standalone. Next week we start Acts, and we'll be in Acts for a long time, all right? So today, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to turn to John 1. We're going to read verse 1, all right? We're going to actually do the first 18 verses. So before we start that, let me just kind of give you a little context, a little background, all right? We're going to put a picture up on the screen for you, all right? This thing's called Rollins Papyrus 52, all right? You ever heard of that? Rollins Papyrus 52? Some people just call it P52, okay? This is the earliest piece of John's letter that we have, all right? Depending on who you are and what radiocarbon dating method you use, this thing is somewhere between 100 to 175 A.D., all right? More contemporary Christian scholars call it closer to 100. The more non-Christian scholars push it further back to 150, 160, all right? The farthest push it to 175. But this is a known piece of John's gospel. It was found in Egypt letting you know that 100 years after Christ died that John's letter was in full circulation there. All right? Historically, it's in full circulation in the whole country of Egypt. All right? Letting you know, again, historically, that John existed, like his letter was around. Here's the other thing we need to know about John, is that John was just like the rest of the apostles. Like, he was just as blind as they were when they were walking with Jesus. The word refers to John as the disciple that Jesus loved, but John made the same mistakes that all of them make. Like he just couldn't see well. It was like there was almost a covering over their eyes until Christ came back from the grave. And then it says that their hearts were open, that their minds were enlightened, and they began to understand everything that was written about Jesus. All right? Take that on top of the fact Christ is on the cross. He looks down and he sees John and his mother crying, and he says, John, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. Translated, take her home. So from that moment on, it says that Mary lived with John. Like, we don't know how long that was. We don't know. We we have no historical accuracy after that. The Catholics will differ from the Protestants. But Jesus told John to take home his mother and treat her like his own. And so Mary went to live with John. Now, think through this clearly. If you're John... And you walked with the Savior for three years, and you still missed a lot of stuff. Like, you missed it. Like, for three years, you walked with him, you saw a bunch of stuff, but you just couldn't connect the dots. And then, all of a sudden, you connect the dots. Like, the Lord raises the veil for you, and you connect everything. On top of that, he now puts you with his mom, where he has the right to ask any question, anytime, about anything about him. What would you do if you're John? Like, what would you do? Like, if you became a witness to all this, and now you have the mother of God living with you, like, what would you ask her? Because you're with her 24 hours a day. Like, y'all are doing life together. Like, what do you ask? Like, I guarantee you, he asked a ton of questions. Wouldn't you want to ask a ton of questions? And now you know why John starts off his gospel the way he starts it off. Because in his mind, like if, if, I'm, if I'm thinking through John, I'm thinking, look, I, I wasted three years not being able to see completely. Like I wasted that time. And for you to waste three years of your life not being able to see clearly is insanity. And so he starts his gospel going straight for, the go- straight for your jugular. Like he doesn't play around with you. 
He doesn't build anything up. He just says, here's the deal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. No gospel starts like this. Only John's, because his veil had been lifted, and I bet at some level he's like, you don't have time to make the same mistakes that I made, right? Like he's trying to disciple all of us. He's like, you don't have the time to make these mistakes. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and that right there blows everybody's mind. Like everybody that he's writing to. So he's writing to both believers and non-believers. So he would say both Greeks Gentiles and Jews. And so in this room, I would say he's writing to you as well. He's written to some of you who have crossed the line of faith, and he's written to some of you who haven't. All right? And let me show you how he does this. He comes in and he says, in the beginning was the Word. Like, who does that? When have you ever read anything that starts, in the beginning was the Word? Like, why use the word, Word? Like he could have said, in the beginning was the Spirit, in the beginning was God, in the beginning was unity, in the beginning he was triune. Like he could have used a thousand things, but he says, in the beginning was the Word. And you're like, why? Why do you use the Word? Why would you do that? Like that just confuses people. But it confuses us. It didn't confuse them. All right? This word is translated L-O-G-O-S. It stands for logos, Right? In their minds, when he's writing to the Jews, so like if you're a Jew, like if you're a believer, like if you know the Old Testament, when you hear the word logos, what it reminds you of is in the Old Testament, it was their intimate way of refilling God. Like when you read in the Old Testament, we've changed the translation, but it's like when they met on Mount Sinai, it says, let us go out and meet with the word of God. When they were going to the tent of meeting, it's like, let us go meet with the logos of God, meaning let us go meet with him in an intimate way. So to the, to the Jews, to the believers, they're like, this is the intimacy of the Lord. To the unbeliever, it was a different meaning. Like if you know about their culture, here's what they did. They philosophized a lot. Like that was their main thing to do. They loved to go and talk about things. And so they had this word too. They used the same word, logos. But in their mind, it meant ultimate reason. The ultimate reason Like the ultimate reason that everything moves in tandem on the earth, the ultimate reason that that the grass grows, the ultimate reason that we can breathe in and out, the ultimate reason of why we're born, the ultimate reason of how the world continues to move in its own way, sustaining life, like there is an ultimate reason to that, and they named it Logos. Are you tracking with me? So what John says automatically says, in the beginning was the word. The Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And so everybody listening to that would be like, you know what? We know that. Like, we know that. We know that the Logos is the ultimate reason. Whatever you want to call him, we know that. All right? Verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. All right? So let's, let's pause in this. If you walk in this world long enough, one of these days, someone's going to knock on your door. They're going to be dressed in white. They're going to, be, they're going to claim that they're from the living God. They may even call themselves Jehovah's Witness. And what they're going to do is they're going to pull out their Bible, right, which is different than your Bible. And they're going to say, let me show you in John chapter 1 
why we believe what we believe. And they're going to go and they're going to say, in the beginning was, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Little g. And they're going to hand it to you, and they're going to say, explain that to us. And then they're going to take you down a trail of Greek and Hebrew text of how they translate this word. All right? Now, here's the thing. No one but them agrees with that translation. It makes no sense. But here's where I would push you just a little bit further. Because in their mind, Jesus is not God. Jesus is nothing more than a created angel sent by God himself. Like, they'll take you down this story. They're like, he's not deity. Like, he's, he's not. He's a created being. And I would say to you, without taking you to Greek and Hebrew, there's a way that you can talk to them in a civilized way to help them understand something else by just simply using verse 3. Just simply use verse 3. In verse 2, it says, He was with God in the beginning. Verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So through him all things were made. Without him nothing has been made that has been made. Meaning that Christ himself or the ultimate reason or the logos has no beginning. He says he did not be created like he stepped out of creation and that he created all things. And without him, nothing was created. So by definition, there is no way that Jesus or the ultimate reason could be created because he's the agent of creation. And just help them understand that. Because like it makes no sense for them to say what they say in context of verse 3. And in fact, John will push them even further. You can't be a created being when you are responsible for all of creation. That's why John continues to push. Like, they don't translate verse 3 any different than you do. And so you just ask them, how can he be created when all things were made through him and nothing was created without him? How can this be? Chances are they'll leave, or the Spirit of the living God will move in their hearts and show them. Don't run from them. Engage if that opportunity plays, yeah? And so we travel through a little four. It says, verse four, in him, in the ultimate reason, in the Logos was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Now let me do some translations word for you here real quick, all right? That word life, in him was life, is translated Z-O-E, all right? What it means is that it is the fullness of your entire body the fullness of your physical body, and the fullness of your soul. So in the Logos, in the Word, is your fullness to your entire soul. It says, and that life, that fullness, was the light of all mankind. So let me translate that word for you, all right? That word light, it's translated just P-H-O-S. It's where you get your word for phosphorus here. Here's the awesome thing about this, is that it means self-existent power. Like there's no external source to him, nothing for him to connect to because he is in and of himself the power source. So in him is the fullness of your life, both physically and spiritually, as well as he is the ultimate power source. He has no need for anything outside of himself as he can just simply connect to you. And when you connect to him, you feed off of his, but he feeds off of nothing. That light... It shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, let me put this in context for you real fast. 
John is brilliant in writing this because he says, in the beginning. In the beginning. Where have you heard that before? Genesis. Genesis 1. It says, in the beginning, what was happening? It says that the world was formless and it was void and what? Darkness covered the land. And the first thing he does is he says, let there be what? Light. So in Genesis 1, when the Lord is creating the entire universe, he says, man, let there be light in the physical darkness. In John 1, the Lord is saying the same thing, except he's saying, let there be light in the spiritual darkness. Thus, he's bringing it all together. He is bringing the fullness of who he is in the fullness of both your physical and your spiritual being. That's what's happening here. And he travels further. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So again, what the, what the writer John is doing is he's referring to John the Baptist. And he's saying, historically, there are more witnesses than just me. Like, you guys know, you've heard of John. He was beheaded. He was taken in, in, into this, the palace, and they cut his head off because a prostitute asked for it. And in this story, John tells him, he's like, I am not him. Like the Pharisees rolled him and said, are you the Messiah? He's like, I'm not him. They said, well, who are you? Are you a prophet? He said, I'm not a prophet. He said, I am the one calling out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And so by definition, he becomes a prophet, right? And so John's whole existence was not to testify that he was the Lord, but to point people to the ultimate reason. His whole existence was to point people towards faith in the Logos, to point them in faith towards the ultimate reason. That was his existence. And John knew this. He says, he himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. Verse 9, it says, the true light, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Let me tell you, verse 9 can play havoc with a lot of people. You want to take a guess why? Because it says the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And people will look at this and say, that means salvation is for everybody as long as they acknowledge Jesus. Or even if they don't, because that light is for everyone. And I would say that there's no way you can come to that conclusion based on this text. Number one, that word, the true light, is a different word than the word we talked about earlier. Like, this word simply means illuminate. Like, his life came to illuminate the way so that everyone could see it, not that everyone would choose it. And so he travels on a little bit further, and he says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, The world did not recognize him. Now, let me ask you something. Have we not been made into the image of God? Then how in the world do we not recognize him? How far have we fallen? How is it that we don't hear his voice anymore? How is it we don't see where he's working? But I'm telling you, he's restoring it. And he's restoring it through you 
I think the reason we have a hard time understanding him is because he didn't come as a king. He came as a carpenter. And no one recognized him. This is no different when you get on Facebook. Not long ago, somebody, Matt, posted something on Facebook about the spirituality of Jesus. And this girl took his post and destroyed him. And then she writes at the end of it, she says, I love God, but I hate religion. Can I say to you, you cannot love God if you do not know what God loves. And you cannot love God if you don't know what God doesn't love. Like, in that situation, you become just like this. Like, you have a formation of who God is, but you do not recognize him because you do not know him. Because the only way to know him is what John tells us is going to happen for us. And so we travel through the verse, and it says, verse 11, it says, He came to that which was his own, yet his own did not receive him. He came to that which was his own, yet his own did not receive him. You know what's crazy about this text? You can literally translate this, that he came home. That's how you translate it. It says, he came home. This is the same words that Jesus told John when he told him to take his mother home. Same words. John's just taking you back to that. And he says, Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Verse 12, Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. What did he just tell us here? He's like, man, the decision to be born again doesn't start with anything that you know. Some of our Reformed friends, listen, I have some good Reformed friends, and they really fight against the fact that you can pray a prayer and receive Jesus. But I will tell you, man, that it's biblically based. Right here it says, to all who did receive him. So let's talk about what that word receive means. Like, what does it mean to receive him? Me and Charlie were having this conversation this week. Like, what does it mean? The first thing it means is that you got to bring him in. Like, whenever somebody gives you something, you got to bring it in. And then you process it. You internalize it, and it begins to become who you are. That is receiving. Charles Spurgeon sets it up like this. Charles Spurgeon said, listen, to receive Christ, to receive the ultimate reason, to receive the Logos, kind of looks like your watch. On the faceplate, it looks the same. The hands look the same. But internally, the gears now speak a different tune. And they lead men into all ways of righteousness because they beat to a different drum. That's what it looks like. And it says, to those who received them, he gave him the right to become children of God, meaning that you are in close, intimate relationship with him. And you know if you are. People know if they are. In verse 14, If you don't remember anything about John 1, then follow 14. It says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. So let me translate that for you. The original translation says this, The Word put on a tent and made His dwelling among us. What does that remind you of? The Word became a tent. Think clearly. Remember in the Old Testament, how did the Lord set it up for them to come meet with him? They built a tent. 
They called it the tent of meeting. And so the Lord would come down into the tent and he would meet with his people and they would put tents up all around it. And so what John's saying is, is like, here's the deal. He no longer lives in that tent. He put a tent on and now walks among you. And so he's yelling at his people. He's like, listen, if God is close, like if he is this far to you, then why do we walk as a way that he doesn't? Like, why not pitch your tent around his tent? Because he's here. Augustine read this. St. Augustine, one of the church fathers, he read John, 14, John 1, 14. He says, I have read every book, every book under the sun about philosophy. I have them all in my collection. He says, but never have I read that he put on a tent and made his dwelling among me. And then he said, I broke. There is no book under the earth that says that the Lord made his dwelling with me. And he said, from that moment on, I was done. I was broken from that point on. He is not far from me, Augustine would say, yet he is in me. This is the Lord. He says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and the only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. So we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The foundation of his government, two pillars, Grace, truth. They do not live apart from one another. In our world, we push, push, push the grace piece. Weak, weak, weak on the truth piece. And John's telling you they don't exist apart from one another because they are found in their fullness in who Christ is in both grace and truth. And so to think that you can have one without the other is a false understanding of who Jesus is. And to think that you can have truth without grace is a false understanding of who Jesus is. He said, walking in that balance, like watch his life. Like he'll tell Peter to come along. He'll also call Peter Satan, right? Jesus is the epitome of both of these. And if we walk apart from them, then we do not walk in his government. We do not walk in his kingdom because they are built on him. John goes on, he says, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now let's think through this. Physically, if you know the story of John the Baptist, you know how far along he was in front of Jesus physically? Take a guess. He was about six, seven months older than Jesus. And so he walks in the door here and he says, here's the deal. He says, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Because he was before me. Now, to the modern man, he would scratch his head and say, but John, you're older than Jesus. But to the spirit-filled man, John would say, here's the deal. He was before all things. He was the first and he will be the last. Like he created me. Like he prepared a way for me. Like he set me up hundreds of years before I ever showed up. That's why I tell you that the sandals of his shoes I am not fit to carry. I am not fit to tie. Like he is before all things, the firstborn of all creation. That's what he would say. And he says this, verse 16, out of his fullness, out of his fullness. The word that translates here is a fountain that overflows. Like the next time that you go to the nursery at Home Depot or Lowe's or wherever you go, when you see that fountain that's overflowing, this is the word that they use. 
It's a never-ending well, a never-ending offspring, like it continues to come forth from the FOSS, from the P-H-O-S, meaning from the source that doesn't need a source, like it just continues to roll, like this is him, this is the one, this is the ultimate reason. And he goes on and says, this is grace in place of grace, like this is grace in place of grace already given. So John's like, out of all the things that the Lord has already done for us, meeting with us on Mount Sinai, fixing us after Noah, giving us prophet after prophet, showing us how to live in a rhythm of shalom, like all of these things, then he shows up and he makes his dwelling among us. And he'll go a step further and say, even in that, when we were wretched and did not deserve him, he lays down his life for us. Now what else can I say about this except that this is grace upon grace? For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. And so John lifts up the word and he says, all of you, whether you call him the ultimate reason, whether you call him the logos, whether you call him this or call him that, like whatever name you give for him, he has a name and it's Jesus Christ. And in him, the fullness of God dwells. That's why he goes on to say, he says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God as in, in, is in closest relationship with the Father. Jesus has made him known. So he says, here's the deal. There's no more guesswork involved in this. There's no more guessing in who you think God is because he lives in the fullness of who Jesus is. Jesus' is life his ministry, and his teaching. Once you've seen him, you've seen the Father. And that's what John is pushing in this first 18 verses. That word for God is theon, T-H-E-O-N. It means the creator of all things. So headed back to John 1, whether you want to call it logos, whether you want to call it ultimate reason, whether you want to call it Dick and Jane, he says his name is Jesus. And in him, the fullness of the Father dwells. He says, and I have seen him. And I have witnessed his glory. And he says to us, he's like, you don't have time to be figuring this out when all of the witnesses have already said it and seen it. For no one has ever seen the creator of the universe, but the one and only Son, who is himself, the creator of the universe and is in closest relationship with the Father because Jesus has made him known. Yeah? And so, man, sometimes, you know, we'll preach the word and people will say, dude, what do I do with that? And man, I would say sometimes just absorb it. Like when I'm, when I'm reading this this week, I'm like, okay, what makes the world go round? Is it me? Is it money? Is it my house or my family? It is the Logos. It is the ultimate reason. The one who put all things in play. John says, man, he's been revealed to you in the name of Jesus. So why do we chase it? I don't know. The question comes is, why did he chase you? Like, why did he chase me? Like, why has he chosen to make known to us the truth of his gospel? Like, why us? 
Like, why does, he stay, why does he choose to stand on the cross when he walks on water? Why does he choose to stand on the cross when he can change water into wine? Why does he choose to stand on the cross, man, when he can catch fish just by speaking? Why does he choose to stand on the cross when he creates stuff with his mouth? But man, when you understand the reason for that, Man, this is worthy of my life. This is worth it. If no one else in this world thinks it's worth it, it's worth it. If no one else in the world thinks you're worth it, the Lord's like, I made myself a tent and made my dwelling for you. So that I would not be far off. He'll go on to say, he's like, all of you, whether you are far from God or whether you are near to him, he's like, he's made his dwelling among you. So draw near to him. Draw near to him, he says. Then he says, let him who has ears, let him hear. Yeah? So let him who has ears, let him hear. So Father, you are good. Like your word is more powerful than anything we know. Out of you rose the fullness of who we are. You are a source that has no need for another source. Like, Lord, we don't even know what that means. But John's being clear with us that you are enough. That he's been witness to your glory. That he has seen it with his own eyes. And that we don't have time to guess. We don't have time to second guess. And Father, we just move into this. And we let the fullness of you dwell in the fullness of us. And so, Lord, I would ask that for our flock. That we just continue to grow deeper into your word. That you would be our vision for things. That the logos, the ultimate reason, like he exists in the form of your son, Jesus. And he made a dwelling, put on a tent, and made your dwelling among us. Your plan from the beginning. And so, Lord... Like, let that just be our vision. Like, let it just sit in us. Father, you're good. Your word endures forever. And your word endures forever. And everyone in this house said...